This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 57, with guest Emma Tracy. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Savorova, and welcome to today's conversation. Emma Tracy worked as a journalist in Colombia and founded a communications agency in South Africa. In 2015, she came to Berlin, where she found herself doing something completely new, co-founding a recruitment platform called Honeypot. Reflecting back, Emma didn't feel like she was qualified to found a tech company, but she also knew she would figure out most of it, and she actually did. In fact, in 2019, Sing, which is a German LinkedIn, acquired Honeypot for 57 million euros, where Emma achieved what all founders dream about, successful company and a million-dollar deal. Today, we speak about why people hold themselves back as they think they aren't good enough and how one can tackle that. We reflect on Emma's success, explorations, and why Berlin is still keeping her here. Get ready to hear Emma's story and make sure to sign up for our newsletter via the website waa.berlin. Hello, Emma. What a great pleasure to welcome you today in the studio. I came across this quote on Irish Times the other day. Berlin must be doing something right if it managed to keep Emma Tracy there for five years. This was in 2019. This made me think that I must be doing something right, that I managed to get you here to the studio. So thank you so much for finding time and coming over. Thank you for having me. I was reading that your family owned a laundronette. This was in Ireland. And this was also the place where you learned that what hard work is. Could you tell me more about that time and also your upbringing and how that shaped you? Yeah, sure. So I'm from Dublin originally, um, and that's where my family's business is. So my mum's family is like a family of small business owners, so a laundrette and sweet shop and things like this. And so I grew up kind of surrounded by this stuff. My mum, very hardworking person. She also has a small accountancy firm. And so I, from the age of about 13, I was um, I was working in the laundrette, just helping out on weekends, um, helping with like cashing up and things like that. So I definitely learned a lot about customer relationships, all the basics, I think, of running a business, how to plan for a business, a little bit of marketing stuff. And yeah, it was just a very good experience. I mean, at the time, I think when I was like, especially 15, 16, and not so many of my friends were working, I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to be working. But it always meant that I knew what it meant to earn properly and to value money and to know what the value of money is and whatever. So yeah, I mean, it was it was just a very formative experience, I think, there. And yeah, just in terms of my childhood in general, I have I grew up with two brothers, so I was very much tomboy, very into sports, part of a family that loves to debate and storytell, um, which I think is very Irish as well. And yes, I mean, I haven't lived in Dublin since I was 19. So I also have... Yeah, very fond memories, and hopefully we'll go back to Dublin at one stage. That's great to hear. So at 19, where where did you go? So you decided to just leave and explore the world. I mean, how come? It's also very early age, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was back and forth between... So I graduated from university at 21 in Dublin, um, but I spent a year in France, six months in San Francisco, about four months in India, I was just always intrigued by the world. I wanted to understand different cultures, different people and and see and explore as much as I could. And so I took the, the opportunities while I could. Cool. But looking back at that time, also in Ireland and in your early 20s, what were maybe particular principles or values that you think shaped you and that still hold true for you today? So I definitely admire my mom hugely. I mean, I admire both my parents, um, but I think... It, Big ones were um, 
you know, being kind to people, being loyal as well. My parents have a very strong relationship, which I think had a very positive effect on me on how I see relationships and people trust and, and things like that. Hard work, I think. And yeah, I guess adventure, you know, like being open to adventure, being open to new things. I can say that retroactively. I don't know if I was ever particularly aware of the fact that I wanted to pursue adventure. It was just the fact of my curiosity kind of leading me to different places and different opportunities. I see. But tell me about more of that time. You know, you, you lived also like in Colombia, Ghana, South Africa, Australia, US, Canada, all of that up until you were 24, right? Yeah, uh, pretty much. And it feels like the world was your oyster. And it was very adventurous life. At the same time, you had a job, you was writing. So how did you manage all of that together? Kept it very adventurous and on the go at the same time, were able to pay your bills, right? <laughs> I mean, um, my original plan was much more traditional, let's say. I was I was planning to travel from Mexico to Argentina in six months and come back and do a master's in, in London, actually, and kind of continue the normal trajectory after that, let's say. But while I was traveling um, in Honduras, my passport got stolen, actually, and Ireland doesn't have as many embassies as Germany. So the closest embassies were Mexico and Argentina. Mm -hmm. So the Irish embassy in Mexico sent me a basically a piece of paper with my face stuck on it <laughs> with this well, temp temporary passport. It's a good start. At least yeah. something. <laughs> so it was okay crossing borders, um, you know, into um, Costa Rica, Panama and, and then into Colombia. But when I was due to fly back from Colombia through the US, there was no chance of getting on a plane. So I realized I had to spend a couple more weeks in Colombia in order to wait for my real passport to come and then fly back. And basically in those few weeks, I just absolutely fell in love with Colombia and decided, no, this is so much more interesting. This is a way big opportunity and I'm going to stay. So, uh, yeah, I'm a firm believer in everything happens for a reason. You know, like losing that passport kind of changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and I just went with the flow from there. I was running out of money at that stage. So I began first teaching English and then I became a journalist through kind of meeting people and volunteering at a local English newspaper and then eventually getting a full-time job with a tra trade publication. Okay, not bad. So by meeting people locally and exploring like the scene, you, you found a job, you started writing and what was the focus? So it was a trade publication focused mm -hmm. on investment into emerging economies. So they were looking at investment into Colombia, Peru, Brazil, um, and other South American countries. So super interesting. That's also why I got to travel so much. And then we, me and a colleague, pitched that we could open an office in West Africa. And that's how I ended up moving to, to Ghana, right. which was then also an incredible experience. And in between, we spent some time in Australia and Canada because quite a lot of investment that was coming into South America at the time was from those two countries. And so we were going there to interview people and, and meet different people. Mm -hmm. Right. And after that, you founded kind of this communications agency in South Africa. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And how, how did that go? I mean, that's a different side of the world. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you, um. you speak of it so easily, like, well, I was just here. And then the next day I ended up being in a different part <laughs> of the world. I mean, not a big deal, yeah. mean, but it's a different culture. It's kilometers away from home and uh, a new environment. So how did it feel for you? I mean, I, I loved everywhere I was. I think there's so much more that connects us and separates us, actually. And I think that's the great thing about travel, that you really realize that, especially mm -hmm. when you get down to the core 
desires of people, which, you know, and is happiness and safety for their family. And um, so I met lots of amazing people actually all along the way and um, learned a lot about myself in different countries. And yeah, finding the um, LIFA, who's the name of the agency, was like an interesting thing because you hear a lot of founders talk about, you know, they really, they burned to be a founder. They wanted, they knew all their lives they wanted to be a founder. And that's not me <laughs> at all. What? Um, <laughs> I grew up, you know, as I said, with this family, small businesses and things like that. And I saw how much hard work it was. Yeah. And I saw myself much more as a creative, free spirit. Um, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a writer. And that's what I was doing at the start of my career. But while we were in Ghana, we started to get like a lot of requests from people to help them with initial websites or branding, communications and things like Mm -hmm. this. And it was just, again, that thing of, well, this is interesting. I'm curious. I want to learn more. I want to know what this challenge involves and and how we do it. And so we started to accept clients and then we realized we could roll it out into a company. Um, And then the early days are also so interesting, you know, like figuring out structurally where do we want to locate this company? How do we start to get new clients? How do we pitch? How do we price? Um, and just building the foundations of the of the company. Um, and that's how it all started. Okay, so look at you. I ended up being a kind of a serial founder in yes. a way, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, against all the odds. How long did that last? And I mean, what was the transition from there to you coming to Berlin? Because that also seems like a a far-reaching hop, you know, <laughs> onto like now into back into your European map. Yeah. So me and my co-founder kind of in, in South Africa, I mean, um, built it up. And I think for me, I could see that this was something that she wanted to develop much more than I did. I loved the hustle of like the early days, but I wanted something more past the initial year or year and a half because what we were doing was, you know, we would find new clients and then, we would build the company by hiring a new account manager. And then it was kind of this slowish growth, exciting, but slowish. And the work uh, was similar-ish as well. Mm-hmm. So I wanted like a bigger challenge. I wanted bigger impact. I wanted to find something which was scalable with tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I actually met someone in South Africa and he lived in Berlin. And I knew Berlin really well because I'd come here a lot during university for the techno scene and also for the Berlin Alley uh, Film enough. Festival. Fair enough. At first I, I thought you said tech scene. I was like, no, techno scene. I was like, <laughs> yeah, of no, course. Definitely the techno. Yeah. <laughs> During university time, well, it's, it's more sounds right if it's techno scene. Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided again to like take the plunge and, and move move here. By that stage, you know, I'd been living in South America for a few years. I'd been living in Africa for a few years. And I thought, okay, it's good to be back closer, a little bit closer to home. Not too close, but a little bit closer back back in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Berlin and thought it was a great place to potentially also found an, a new company. I'd met someone as well. Was that person you met in South Africa was your co-founder? No, sorry, if, uh, he was a boyfriend. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of like a convergence of life and life aims and professional aims, let's say. Which is probably the best uh, when both go hand in hand, right? Exactly, yeah. So here you are in Berlin. And I remember you basically did your master's also. So you yeah. started to explore. But how did you come across idea of Honeypot? I mean, you had this feel, as you said, you would like to become a founder of something more scalable, something techy. Honeypot seems like perfect idea for that because it's a it's a tech talent marketplace and it's scalable. There's a lot of opportunities, right, with with those platforms. But I'm quite sure it didn't just land on on the lap. 
as you expected, right? No, and I have to give full credit to my co-founder, Kaya. Um, so Kaya, I didn't come from the tech scene at all. You know, I came from a pure brand company in South Africa and I was moving to Berlin. Um, but my co-founder, Kaya, had already been working in the Berlin tech scene for quite a number of years through Hitfox and had founded a company previously called Uplift. Mm-hmm. And he actually hired me as kind of the first marketing person, pre-product, pre-name. And we launched the company together. And shortly after the launch, he actually asked me to become co-founder. Um, so it's kind of an interesting story. That's cool. Yeah. Why, why do you think he, he asked that? I mean, I had said to him when I when he hired me that I'm my plan is I just want one year of experience at early stage with a, like a successful entrepreneur and then I'm founding my own company. So I was very straightforward from the from the start. Um, yeah. And then I think he said, well, you don't need to found your own thing. You can join me and let's just do this together and let's build this together. So I I mean, I really owe him a, a huge debt of gratitude uh, for the opportunity that he gave me. It, it seems like you really had good synergy and you connected also very good on a personal level. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think he's probably the person I have the best working relationship with. So super easy to always work with him. Hardly needed verbal communication to know what, you know, we would be working on together. That's incredible. Um, And having seen more co-founder relationships over the years, I know that that's not something that's always normal either. So So there there it is a bit of a lucky moment. Yes. (laughs) But I was also reading because you you just mentioned that you went into it without having the background basically in the tech scene, not being a founder of a tech company yourself. So this was completely new. Your role was not necessarily new because you did branding and marketing. So it was kind of your still the comfort zone. But I was reading a post uh, on LinkedIn where you said and you shared your thoughts on the fact that you felt you were not qualified to found Honeypot and be the co-founder. But you went for it nonetheless. And you kind of showed by your own example that, yes, this is possible and it can be a success. So how did you push those boundaries and what made you pursue this endeavor, regardless of feeling not qualified, right? I think when I was talking in that post, I was talking about the fact that looking from the outside in, I I was seemed like I wasn't qualified. I think like in the end, like what makes you actually qualified for anything, you know, almost everything you do in work is new, or at least it should be new. Otherwise, you're not growing and you're not learning. So technically, nobody's really qualified per se to do to do anything. And that's always been my mentality since I worked at that magazine at the very start of my career because I was, what, 21 and I was interviewing people in their 60s and they showed me so much about how you can never really be qualified for a role, you know? I mean, maybe it sounds stupid, but like things change so fast, especially in digital, like, you know, nobody's really fully qualified and that's kind of the way I always thought. So I just thought like you learn as you go, you improve as you go, you're going to be shit at some things. That's just life. So, so, so the times where you had those interviews with people way older in their 60s, when they shared the stories, that what inspired you and that was the moment you realized basically they had to start a lot of things from scratch. They had to do a lot of... Th- so basically you were shaped in a way by hearing those stories. Yeah, it would either inspire me, which was the majority of the cases, or I would see that like... There would be a fragile ego behind what this person, who this person potentially was. If you dug a little deeper or challenged them, mm-hmm. they weren't as as intimidating as they seemed, let's say. So on both sides, you know, that not to be as intimidated potentially by, by people who seem super experienced and also 
by people who actually are really experienced and often very humble to learn the fact that they learned also on the go. They learned as they as they grew. 100%. So maybe what would be, because you had your own approach to that and you had this courage, this confidence, as you said, this was from the outside, this was, would have been con considered as something not qualified or something not working, but you deep inside realized, I'm just going to push through, I'm, I'm going to give it a try and I'm going to make it work. But that's not how maybe everyone works and they feel a bit pressured from the outside and the opinions from the outside. So what would be your maybe practical advice to others that feel unqualified or not good enough for a job, for a role, for starting something? Yeah, I mean, I think just um, it's <laughs> always this, I think advice is really hard to take on board, but trying to practice like high self-awareness Listen really when people tell you you're good at something because you probably are good at it and focus on those and build on your strengths and don't like sweat it if you're not good at certain things either, right? <laughs> It's not the end of the world. Like you don't have to do everything. You don't have to be amazing at everything and there's ways to compensate when you aren't great at things. So I think being aware of one's strengths and weaknesses, like there's so many things I'm so bad at, like really and people who work closely <laughs> with me know that as well. Um, and I'm not trying to be perfect at everything. I know that There's many people who are much better than me at many, many things. Um, unfortunately, I think the thing that I've perceived that holds people back the most is themselves. Mm -hmm. But then your approach is then, do you still work on those weaknesses or you say like, okay, I admit this is a weakness. Let's just leave it at that. And let's focus on the strengths because this is where I know I'm going to you know, push the needle. Yeah, I do try to work on weaknesses. If I know that there's like a gain, especially for people around me, um, mm -hmm. So, for example, like one of my weaknesses is that I tend to take on way too many things at the same time and people around me then have to pick up for me if I can't complete the thing up to the standard that I should. So practicing like saying no, better evaluating the scope of projects and things like that was was something I tried consciously to work on. That you have to ask my colleagues if that's actually <laughs> been achieved or not. <laughs> I'm going to interview them like right after and be like, okay, guys, tell me everything. One question before we go into the story of acquisition and the exit, the logo, I mean, it's just unbearably cute. <laughs> and every time I remember I would bump into the logo of Honeypot anywhere on LinkedIn or I actually bumped into it a lot. So great job to the marketing team. Maybe I was not the right target, but anyways, I appreciated <laughs> the, the beauty of the logo and the great branding that you have. What was the idea behind it and why this beautiful little animal that always have different themes and, and motives uh, depending on the season or <laughs> holiday? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the initial thing was that we just wanted something playful, a mascot that could be recognizable and brandable. Um, and also, if you look at branding within kind of developer-focused products and community, they often have quite cute logos, actually, which is interesting, right? Because we associate developers as being very analytical, rational people. Um, but if you look at GitHub, for example, they also have like a very cute logo and, and other products like this. So that's where the initial thought of, okay, let's have a a mascot as our logo um, came from. And then we wanted to combine the fact that we're from Berlin, so the bear uh, of Berlin, with our name Honeypot. So when I wrote the brief for the logo, it was like, we need to combine a bear and a pot, <laughs> a honeypot. And we actually got the logo from 99 Designs uh, for 129 euro. No way. Yeah, really lovely Italian designer designed it for us. Doesn't, unfortunately, didn't really speak so much English. So we wanted to hire him, but we, we couldn't. So he gave us the initial logo plus about three or four variations. And then 
Johanna Dalrus, who was Honeypot's first designer, like designed loads of different costumes and the future designers continued. (laughs) And today, if you think about NFTs and everyone kind of trying to find those unique nfts it would have been perfect right you could have That's like so you could have like traded them you know and, yeah. and there will be ones that will be like highly valued maybe the honeypot bear like wearing a halloween costume being like the one sought after <laughs> that's actually such a good idea i love it <laughs> maybe um, the team should implement that now here it is you know sharing sharing my thoughts so how many of them out there <laughs> God, I'd say we have about 200 now, something like that. Fantastic. It has its own um, like GitHub page, actually, where you can see all of them. That's adorable. Yeah. But that's right. That's how you also build the community around developers, I guess. This yeah, is, part of as, it. As you say, that there's this feeling of contribution. There's a mascot. Again, there's a feeling of connection. Um, I think that's that really you, you, you hit the target there for sure. And actually then in 2019, so you founded Honeypot in 2015, then comes the... 19 and German LinkedIn, which is called Xing, acquired Honeypot for 57 million euros. Great success. But how did it feel to you to exit, to kind of sell the company? And also, why did you think this was the right decision at that time, given that, you know, this company was probably very close to your heart and something that you've put a lot of, you know, soul uh, and heart and thoughts and tears and everything into? So tell me more. Yeah. So when the acquisition process kind of started actually was not what we were intending to do so we were not going out for exit we were going out for series a Mm -hmm. up to that point we had only raised um angel and friends and family as well um and we had been actually very unsuccessful with raising capital before that um i think the model felt difficult i think for for vc and they challenged the scalability of the model and things like this um which was also a huge learning along the way and, and difficult for us at that time but yeah so you know we'd kind of addressed all of the concerns and proved I think that it was very very scalable Um, and so we were going out for series A and we actually got some term sheets at that time as well Um, but almost at exactly the same time Singh's um, VP of strategic development contacted us and asked would we be interested in in talking and so we entered kind of a process of of talking with them and then my co-founder and myself began to evaluate which actually makes most sense you know going into series A or going with a strategic partner to for exit. And I think the thing which tipped it for us was meeting a lot of the team internally at Zing. Um, they actually have a, a really cool culture inside the company and they had uh, a lot of belief in the vision that we wanted to, to pursue and to grow the company. And that's really what made the decision for us in the end. But you also then saw how Honeypot basically was transitioning from the startup to a large-scale grown-up company. Um, how did you find yourself there? And because you stayed for a while and you took the role as, of a CEO, but then you you left. And do you think there was a reason you left is you didn't feel that you belonged in this larger structure? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, talking about strengths and weaknesses earlier, um, at least that, at that point of my time of my life, I felt like I wasn't the person to be uh, in between kind of a larger company and our own company. It was also really challenging going into 2020 because of COVID. Um, So we had to go through two rounds of layoffs, um, which I was leading and was probably the hardest point of my career. But I had already decided anyway, pre knowing that the layoffs were coming, that for the company's future, I was not the best leader. So self-awareness, self-reflection. It needed someone who had the experience of scaling a company of that size and knew the role 
um, I was still very interested in being mm-hmm. very operationally hands-on and less kind of managerial, let's say. I see. Was it easy to find or was it difficult to find that substitute that reflects all those qualities you're looking for, but also maintains the culture and grows it further? Yeah, we um, so we started the... We were actually so lucky. We only interviewed, I think, three people for oh, the wow. the successor position. Efficient. <laughs> yeah, the replacement CEO Philip Goose. He had run successful founder transitions in the past um, with marketplaces, um, and so he just fit the profile super, super well. And we kept also some of the team who had been in leadership positions at the company. Um, And they kind of stayed on board to help culture and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I think he did a great job and the leadership now is great as well. I think they've done so many things at the company that I think me and Kaya never would have been able to do. Um, But it was really challenging because of COVID and the ripple effects of people leaving, you know, after layoffs. This is something that always happens. And so I questioned actually if the culture of the company would, would remain. But I think they're in such a good place now. Um, and growing like crazy again um, and doing incredibly well. A very happy culture from what I've heard. Um, And so I'm really proud and happy about that. That's good to hear. And and also something, Emma, that I also noticed, you mentioned that in general, it seems like we don't talk enough um, about the topic of different founders and CEOs fit to different companies and different structures. And sometimes we see situations where founder which being a CEO started with a smaller company and they but they stay for 10 20 years yeah. and the, the organization has grown dramatically and who's the person that should realize that because if you're a first time founder and you're very much connected to your company because this is your baby you've been there you live and breathe right the mission the brand of it the value it's bringing to consumers how does one know when should they step down, step sideways and let someone else to take over? Who should be the, how should I say, the the guide here in making that decision? Because for founders themselves, it can be very difficult to realize that. Yeah. I mean, in our case, I think both Kai and I realized it for ourselves. And Singh, actually, they, they tried to um, convince us to stay on. But we made the point that actually the company will be better w- without us. So I think like the best case scenario is the founder themselves realizing I think it becomes really difficult when they don't. Although some founders are incredible, I think they really can go from zero to, you know, 10,000, 20,000. Um, but it's it's a very special personality. Special personality? In, in, in how would you describe that personality? I mean, I think it's someone who's definitely very multi, multi-talented um, and adapt, adaptive because they can understand what an and very strategic, I think, as well, because they can understand what an organization needs at 10 people, what an organization needs at 1,000 people, what an organization needs at 10,000 people. So I have a lot of respect for, for founders who, who can do those, those journeys. And I can imagine that there's not the easy like cheat sheet uh, that yeah. someone can look into <laughs> and that every organization, even with different number of employees, it looks differently based on the industry, the values. So it can you can anticipate certain things, but there are a lot of things have to be decided ad hoc. Yeah, um, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. This is interesting, um, and and I think a topic that is worth exploring because these days we see a lot of you know founders that are there for a while, a lot of founders starting new, stepping down, and I think Emma also from your perspective that reflection that you have is just quite fascinating, and it's a good for everyone a reminder that 
reflection and potentially making a step back or sideways is not necessarily bad. It's it's good. Uh, it's also growth in a way. Another topic I want to talk about is women in tech. And I know that a lot of companies are, I would say, complaining, maybe not the right word, but they are definitely a bit devastated in a way that there's not enough women in tech, meaning there's not enough women in product, developers, data scientists. And you and your team got to do a lot of analysis and research because you were running the marketplace for tech people. So you got the feedback, you got people writing what they like, what they dislike. I can imagine there was a lot of interaction that you got to see between the companies and the developers, tech people. So there's a lot of interesting resourceful information. And my question is, so why are there not enough women in tech? And do you particularly see it as a problem space or we actually have enough women in tech and there's just another problem that we're seeing. Hmm. Where are we at? Yeah. So, I mean, talking about like engineering specifically, women not only enter work, like so qualified computer scientists, engineers, not only do they enter um, the workplace in lower numbers, but they also drop out in higher numbers. So there's like two places kind of where I think that can be helped and fixed. Um, and I'm I'm talking now just about what companies can do. I'm not talking about the systemic because that's a whole other thing, right, in education and and society. But companies, I think, first of all, can make big efforts to hire a certain amount of women. If they can't find those women, they should look within their own organizations for women who might want to transition from product, for example, um, from customer success, I think that's a great place to transition into engineering because you have such exposure to the users and, and whatnot. We actually did that in Honeypot. We supported one one female employee who wanted to move from um, talent success, so people who look after the developers, into engineering. And we, so we paid for her to transition into this. So like setting goals for yourself. And if you can't find the women through traditional channels, look at untraditional channels and open yourself up to the world. Europe is way behind in terms of women studying engineering, computer science and other parts of the world. The Middle East, for example, is a great place to hire women from because they enter computer science in much higher rates than they do in Europe. And then I think the second part is like asking yourself, do we have higher attrition rates for women who actually we do hire? Like, are they staying? Are they leaving quicker? Um, are they dropping out at higher rates? And if so, look at your organization and figure out how you can fix that um, because it can be intimidating to be the only woman on the team. You were talking about it earlier as well, right? Right, exactly. Um, and what can you do to fix that, I think? So looking at both parts um, in a strategic way. So it's interesting. So the perspective here is that actually it's the companies that need to put effort. And in fact, there are enough women in the tech workplace to be hired. It's just the companies they need to reevaluate and maybe put a little bit of effort to help them find kind of the way into the company. Yeah, I mean, I think there there is still a shortage, like I said, okay. um, of women feeling that they want to or can enter more technical subject areas. Right, but that's also, as we said, maybe more educational, societal also exactly, aspect yeah. of the topic. Yeah, so I don't believe that companies can use as as an excuse to have such low <laughs> rates of women in within the workplace. Fair enough. What uh, what did you guys at Honeypot do to improve the situation? So, I mean, we we always tried to um, promote specifically women joining the the platform, obviously, because also the company is looking for it, um, and tried to lead a little bit by example as well. So, 
our VP of tech was a woman for a long time, but also, like I said, running projects like integrating women from other teams into the tech team um, and various topics like that. But I think, you know, I don't think that we were perfect either. I think there's a lot more we could have done too. Again, a very reflective comment yeah. of you. <laughs> I, I just I just love it. There is always room for improvement. As a wrap-up of our conversation, I was curious, Emma, to know what is still keeping you today in Berlin, knowing that you have this very adventurous, you know, early 20s, 20s, and that could have also shaped you in wanting to travel more and experience and explore and maybe end up in Tokyo, for instance, and, and build something there. How come you're still in Berlin today? Yeah, I still find Berlin to be one of the most interesting cities in the world. I still love the history of the city. I find it so fascinating, the art, the music, the everything basically about the city. And professionally, I still see a lot of opportunities here that I really want to explore. And I'm also 32 weeks pregnant. <laughs> so <laughs> right now, at least, travel is off the cards, but maybe, maybe in the future again. That's also another reason I really appreciate you making it to the <laughs> studio. It's my second guest who is um, pregnant. So it's, I'm always like honored <laughs> that, that you, ladies, you make it here to the studio. And how has your perception of the city as a specifically tech startup hub have changed over time? Because maybe we can look at three timeframes. First one, 2015, it's when you came here, when you founded Honeypot. There was 2019 where the exit happened and now basically kind of post-pandemic time, what do you think of Berlin as a tech startup hub throughout those times? Yeah, I think probably because I come from marketing and brand perspective anyway, that that's the most interesting shift that I feel and perceive. Um, so going from kind of the company builder, rocket era, copycat type companies where execution was like the, the strong focus and, and what um, Germany and Berlin really became known for, I think, you know, these, these companies that executed very strongly. But were copycats. But were copycats. Um, Ooh, that's not nice. <laughs> um, yeah, to a much more mature ecosystem now with a lot more originality, I think much stronger focus on branding rather than just um, pure paid acquisition and execution. So I see that as like one of the kind of big maturing elements of it. I think also I have to appreciate that I'm in a totally different perspective now, right? I was like really an outsider when I first um, came here. Um, and I know so many more people now. And I'm also, you know, more like an angel investor, consultant helping startups, um, as opposed to being kind of a young hustling founder when I, as I was when I first arrived. Um, so my own experience of the city has, and the tech scene has totally changed as well. How do you find yourself as an angel investor? Um, yeah, I love it, actually. Um, that was one of my aims after leaving Honeypot. I wanted to learn more about fi the financial side of things. And just meeting all of these incredible founders is like, I love it. You know, it's, it's I'm just so inspired all the time um, by, by people I'm meeting, by the companies I've invested in, by the founders and what they're doing. And I'm I'm learning all the time. So I, I really love it. And speaking like of planning maybe for next year, besides like the bigger projects uh, that, <laughs> uh, that you're working on, do you see yourself uh, staying that, in that role as an angel investor or do you see yourself stepping into the shoes of a founder once again? I think both, yeah. Next Same. year. Yeah. So <laughs> there's more to learn. Yes, for sure. 
Emma, this is very exciting. There is something that I always leave for last part of my conversation, which sometimes is a bit challenging uh, to some of my guests, this question, uh, but uh, let's see how, how you will tackle it. And my question is, who would you like to highlight today as your woman author of achievement? You're probably going to laugh at this, but a huge role model for me actually is Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> Emma, I mean, for some reason, I didn't expect that from you. Um, yeah, tell I, me more. Everyone who works with me knows that I'm a huge Kardashian fan, actually, um, <gasps> from the early days. But I think that she has just so well ridden the cultural zeitgeist over the last 10 to 15 years and moved up the value chain with incredible like strategic precision you know so she went from being kind of like a c-list discredited reality star famous for being famous with a sex tape to you know starting to work with some respected brands to i mean first she was even a daughter of a lawyer so yeah. basically you know someone kind of on the background representing the dad who exactly, was the not fa- even who was famous self. because of the og simpson case exactly right? yeah so then, she, yeah, so then she progresses. She starts to kind of get sponsorship deals and things like that. She has her big break by being on the cover of Vogue, thanks to Kanye, who's now obviously cancelled um, with good reason, but progressed to that and then started to really ride the wave of influencer marketing, DTC, opened up Skims, um, Skin, became a billionaire in the process and now has moved up one chain again when she's opened up her own venture capital firm. So... I just admire that so much because she has worked incredibly hard, I think. And like, despite being completely discredited from the start of her career, she's just worked and worked and worked. And now she's really an A-list celebrity, but also an A-list entrepreneur. She's really respected for what she's built and what she's done um, with her multiple companies. And it's like everything she touches turns to gold. Um, Interesting. So you see it more from... Basically, her as a as a brand herself, how she grew from basically no name to, as you said, everything that she touches is becomes the, you know, the thing that everyone wants to wear or go to or be at. So you look at it from more marketing perspective, or more from human perspective, her as a person growing. I think both, yeah, her as a human as well. Okay. Um, I, I like I enjoy her as a human, and I, there's so many points you can criticize, right? So you know, like cultural appropriation and how she looks her impact on kind of women especially when it comes to plastic surgery and all fair criticisms you know no one's perfect that's my philosophy and I I just find her very very down to earth actually in the end um, and very inspiring in the way she's moved herself up the value chain despite people saying she's dumb and she's stupid and she's just you know a hot girl feels like we can just, you know, turn off the mics and have uh, another, you know, two hour conversation on this topic. It's it is very <laughs> interesting. And I would like to thank you once again for coming over to the studio just uh, right ahead of very exciting, you know, times for you um, with being pregnant and being part of the podcast and, um, you know, soon you know, welcoming someone into the world and sharing your story. I think it's very interesting how we spoke about the feeling of, you know, not being qualified for something and stepping over that, how you as a founder have grown and reflected. I just fascinated by how much you reflected throughout your life, um, wherever you were, by your incredible, you know, traveling experience and how you built yourself through that and sharing this today. I mean, I'm just humbled and honored to know that there's someone like you here in Berlin 
still here and still fascinating with the scene. That's a good sign that you're not uh, running away from us to Portugal. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> and uh, wishing you a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really fun. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.